This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Until I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not, only my, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our next reading comes from 1 Corinthians, and we'll be reading chapter 1 verses 18 to 31. Paul wrote, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are, 
so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives to the glory of your great name. Amen. You may have that sermon outline with you, and uh, now will be the time to take that out. But I want to begin by asking the question, is God powerful? We might fervently believe that God exists and that he's a God who means very well. But when we survey the mess the world is in, we might also believe that he is a God who is not powerful, but in fact, impotent. If God is good and God is powerful, then why is what we see around us not in, more in accord with his will? Is he not so powerful after all? Is he full of good intentions, but no ability or not so great an ability to deliver on those intentions? Now, the two great events of the 20th century that really led to serious doubts about and ongoing doubts about the power of God were, of course, the First World War and then the Holocaust. How can these momentous evils exist in a universe in which there is a sovereign God? Is God just a bystander to human affairs, more like a pipe-smoking history professor with elbow patches, recording rather than making history? He might care and he might weep at our plight. But what we need is not so much a counsellor as a king. And this might be something that you feel very personally and very keenly. There may have been things that have happened in your life that are happening in your life where you've prayed, Lord, if only you had been here. Why must we experience pain and grief like this? Someone once said to me, about the accidental death of a child that they knew, they said God must have been asleep that day. And so we doubt God's power. But at the same time, and a bit paradoxically, it's characteristic of we modern people that we also worry about a God who is too powerful because we are so wary of power itself. The history of modernity, the last two centuries, has been about suspicion of too much power. We hold as an incontrovertible truth what the English politician Lord Acton once said. You may have heard it. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We believe this because we've seen it time and time again in our parliaments, in businesses, in churches, in offices. This has been the cry, the plaintive cry of the Me Too movement in our time. And also in our day, technology has, for all the good things it has brought us, better equipped tyrants to exercise cruelty and to wage war. We accept that power is necessary, I guess, for power gets things done that need to be done. But we accept it as a necessary evil. We know that those who shout loudest, clean the Canberra swamp, will in time need to be cleaned up themselves. So the question we have of God is, could God be powerful and good? 
since we see that the power gives those who wield it dirty hands, must God choose between his power and his goodness? Well, when we turn to the Bible, we don't see any hesitancy about God's power. One of God's great Old Testament names is El Shaddai, or sometimes just Shaddai, which we translate Almighty. We've already had this word on our lips today. Uh, We've already called him, addressed him as the Almighty God. It's a name we hear God call himself, first of all, when he speaks to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. Now, there are many things that could be said about the Almighty God, El Shaddai, and his power. Many things that could be said. But I want to talk about just three this morning. About his deeds, that he is the creator. About his office, that he is the king. And about his being, that he is holy fire. So first of all, the creator. The Lord Almighty is the maker of all that is, seen and unseen. You only have to open the Bible to page one to discover this. And Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, shows us that he creates simply by speaking. He says, let there be light, and there was light. It was so whenever he says. He is the source of all that exists. He's the source of the material substance of all that exists, but he's also the source of the order that we see in the extraordinary creation. He orders things and he puts them in their right place. He separates the dry land from the seas. He separates the waters below and the waters above. He puts the creatures in their right place. He sets the boundaries of creation and gives them their immeasurable variety. He holds back the seas. He breathes the breath of life into his creatures. And Genesis is not the only place where we see this exaltation of God and his majestic creative power in the Bible. Just a couple of other places. Job chapter 38, 39 and 40. Go there if you want to see an extraordinary account of God's creative power. Or Psalm 8 is a great place too. But Psalm 104 is a particular favorite of mine. A wonderful hymn to the creator. Listen. Listen to how his majestic power is described. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides upon the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The Bible invites us again and again to look at the vastness of the universe and the power that is present in it. Earthquake, storm, fire, the waves, life itself. And to wonder, who could have made these? As theologian J.I. Packer says in that book, Knowing God, that we're selling... Uh, He says, I love these words, he says, the world dwarfs us all, but God dwarfs the world. When next you wonder at the power of the sea as you walk along the seashore, or the light of the sun, or the power of a storm if you're caught in it, wonder at the power of the one who made them. He is the creator. But he's also the king. 
He rules the creation as its king. He not only sets it in motion, but he rules it. In Revelation chapter 4, right at the end of the Bible, there's an extraordinary scene in John's vision where he imagines what heaven is like and all the creatures of the earth are gathered around the throne. It's deliberately a throne which indicates royal rule, right? And they gather around the throne upon which God sits and they sing this song. You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. It's not simply that he has raw power. He also has the moral right to order the creation as he sees fit. He is worthy to receive all of that, all that adoration, all that worship and obedience. He is worthy to receive the adulation of the creation that he has made. He sits upon the throne in his majesty. Psalm 29 puts it this way. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. And Psalm 93, we hear, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord, Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul calls God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, a title which Jesus will also be called in Revelation 19. We wonder at and are intimidated by human power. We're very impressed by human power, by the power of wealth, by the power to rule countries, by the power to start businesses, by the power to lead armies. And yet, all human power ultimately bows to this, to God's power, to his rule. It only has its authority, at his, it only has its power at his behest. As Jim Packer writes, he has us in his hands, but we never have him in ours. He is the king. It's not just that God has a track record of powerful acts or that he holds high office, that he has the moral right and authority to rule over his creator, creation. His very essence is power. Power is who he is. He is power. As, as American theologian Catherine Sonderegger puts it, God does not have power. He is power. Holy power itself. God is power. Now, God is not just an, he's not an impersonal force like, like we know electricity or nuclear power to be. He is personal. And yet, this personal being simply crackles with divine energy. There is a radiant and dynamic life in the being of God that permeates the universe. The universe is not God, but it is, as Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote, charged with the grandeur of God. I once went to uh, see a uh, power station up in past Bathurst, one of those power stations um, that we're probably not going to see much longer because it was a coal-fired power station. And I don't know if you've ever been to a power station, but I was driving past with my friend Justin Moffat. Some of you know him. And he's the sort of person who stops to smell the roses in life, so you never get to where you want in the time that you're supposed to because he always says, let's go there. And he said, let's go and have a look at the power station. So we went into the power station, and you can take a tour of a power station. And I remember going uh, around the power station. It's very interesting how power is generated. Um, uh, the lines of, of coal trucks coming in and fueling 
this massive furnace because essentially a power station is a massive furnace. And we climbed up into the power station. You go around the furnace. The furnace is this massive concrete building about the, the, the width of this church, the size, but of course much, much higher. And there is a little window through which you can see what is going on in the furnace. And what you can see in there is just flame. You can't, it's not like looking at a, a wood fire. It is just flame. It is just flame. It hums and it heaves with this radiant heat. I remember taking a little tissue out of my pocket and putting it in that hole. And the hole just it, it, being sucked into this little window and just disappearing. Such is the Lord God in his power. He is a holy fire. It's one of the strongest biblical images for the being and existence and power of God. He is present at fi as fire, especially in the Exodus, when he meets Moses in the burning bush, when he leads the people around with a pillar of fire through the wilderness, and when they gathered around Mount Sinai to hear him speak from the fire on the top of the mountain. He comes down as fire upon Elijah's altar at Mount Carmel, and tongues of flame rested on the heads of the apostles at Pentecost. We have mixed feelings about fire. There is the warmth and safety of the hearth and the light of the burning candle. Fire is also dangerous. We Australians know this. It's destructive. It burns and it consumes. And the Bible calls our God, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, calls him a consuming fire. God is not safe. We cannot presume or belittle or contain God. We cannot stand in the presence of his holy fire. We cannot master him or contain him. But the fiery being of God came to his people Israel and lived among them, veiled by the tabernacle, that great tent where they went to meet him, and later the building, the temple, where he came, he stood to heal them and to hold them. It cleansed them and it purified them. Just as the burning bush was a flame but not consumed. So the people of Israel knew the fire of God in their midst, but it did not consume them. It was their life. And this is the vital thing to know about the powerful God, the God who is holy fire. The powerful God is patient and humble and gentle in his power. He exercises his almighty and infinite power through, in and around the weakness and finitude of human beings. We see this again and again in the history of Israel. God is their king, but he's also seen as a mother nurturing a child. He leads them out of Egypt, though they were only a slave people, and puts them in the land, giving them the land to live on. He does not destroy them when they grumble and rebel, but persists with them and calls them to repent. Isaiah chapter 49 puts it this way, comparing God to a mother, appropriate for our day today, Mother's Day. Can a woman, he says, forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these occasionally may forget, says God, but I will not forget you. But the powerful sovereign Lord is at his most majestic in the humble life of Jesus Christ. Remember from last week we said, if you want to look at God, if you want to see God, look at Jesus, right? 
If you want to look, if you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. Did you notice the passage from chapter 13 of John's gospel? It's an interesting moment. Jesus, he says in verse 3, knew that the Father had given him all things into his hands. In another translation, it says, had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning from God. Jesus knew he'd been given the mighty power and authority of the Father in heaven himself. What would you do with such power? What would you do with your moment of worldwide rule? What does Jesus do? He got up from the table, verse 4, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. Let's just pause and take that in. What does divine power look like in the form of Jesus? In all his vast might, God chooses to work in this way in the world. The King of Kings comes to be your servant, to wash you, to make you clean. Absolute power does not corrupt him. He's no tyrant or bully. He washes the feet of his disciples. And this is only the beginning. For in all his power, Jesus goes further even than this and freely embraces the weakness of the cross for us. He is the sovereign Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation who bleeds his life away for your sake. While he was on the cross, they taunted him because they thought he was impotent. Come down from the cross, you who thought you were the king. Ha! And indeed, he could have come down from the cross. But this is not the way of divine power. This is not how God chooses to use his power. And Paul says exactly this in the other passage we had read for us in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. He says, the cross, the cross is the power of God. It may not look like it to the world. It looks impotent and ridiculous, worthy only of scorn. And yet, for those who are being saved, says Paul, this is the power of God. Archbishop William Temple once said, He reigns from the tree. Oh, I like that. He reigns from the tree. He is the king who is crowned with a crown of thorns. How unlike human power this is. For all our suspicions about power, so obviously confirmed in human affairs, are not confirmed when we look to the weakness of the cross. God's absolute and free almighty power are at work for our sakes on the cross where Jesus bore the price of our sin willingly and freely. And that's not all, for God raised Jesus to life again as Lord. The cross is not merely an, a glorious example of self-sacrifice, glorious but perhaps futile. The resurrection shows that it was a triumph over death itself. The resurrection reveals that it was not what was not easy to see in the desolation and dereliction of the cross, that God was at work in his power, reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. Death and evil and sin do not triumph. No, they are exhausted by the cross. And Jesus is raised by God's power. 
The death and resurrection of Jesus then are a signal to us that God is not finished with human beings. He's not impotent or far off, but has entered into the midst of history, veiled in weakness, but in full power. Jesus now stands supreme, and while yet we groan that we are beset by pain and sadness, we all know that all things are, as the old, the old song says, in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Now these aren't far off thoughts that make no difference. These are truths to live in. They make a huge difference. For we learn not only that God is truly powerful, but also that he's working his good plan and his purpose out in and around and even through us, even when we can't see it, when we are bewildered, when we are angry, when we are just without words, when we have no words to say. God is at work in his divine and almighty power in and around and through us. At his throne, then, we can only fall down and worship. But remembering that the one seated upon the throne, the lamb who was slain, stoops to wash our feet. And so we have a great comfort in God's holy power. I've had two occasions this past week to say to God, God, I really don't know what the plan is here. I can't see it. These are matters of such pain and sorrow for others that I can't begin to fathom them. Cancer in a friend's 10-year-old child. Terminal cancer. And the sudden death of a young father. To say God is in control at moments like this could sound heartless or cruel. But to know that God is in control is to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is to know what Paul says in Romans 8, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. This does not give us answers, but it does give us hope, even in the darkest places at the darkest times. One of my favourite songs says, Every sorrow has its place in his tapestry of grace. God's brilliance is that he weaves every weakness and every pain. Even the harrowing scene of the cross where the Son of God died into a glorious new picture. He recreates the broken creation. His humble power which looks like weakness to us, is God's strength, stronger than any human strength. This humble power is enough to heal our pains and dry our tears. And so we're invited, you and I, to lean into it, to trust in and to submit to his divine power, to continue in our obedience of him to learn direction for our lives from him, to listen to him when he speaks. For he reigns. He rises from the dead. And know then what Paul says, that if God is for us, who can be against us? And by the power of the cross, we know that he is for us. But we also have a model for our own use of power as human beings. Jesus not only washes his disciples' feet, he tells them to wash one another's. 
as the humble Lord, our crucified and risen King, Jesus shows us then a better way to use our power, a better way to be powerful. If we are nervous now of human power or cynical about it, then in Jesus we have found a more excellent way. It's the way of humility, patience and gentleness. It's not exploitative or bullying. It's for the sake of others. And so I want, I want to ask you, think about, consider your life where you have power, for you do. Where do you have power over others? You have power as a voter. You have power as a consumer of products. You have power perhaps as a shareholder or as a board member. You have power according to that number that's in your bank account, for money is a form of power. You have perhaps, you just perhaps have power because people respect you. You have power in the, in the playground because you are the, you are the, you know, you're the queen bee or the male equivalent. You have a power as a parent or as the child of an elderly parent or as the owner of land you have power or as the owner of animals you have power. You have power in the workplace or you have power as a social influencer. You may have power here in the church. Now, power is not bad in and of itself. In fact, God gives human beings power so that they can rule the earth. He shares his dominion of the earth with us. It is not a bad thing. It makes things happen. It helps God. God uses human power to do his will in the world. But do you use your power for the sake of others or for your own? Do you exercise your power with humility, patience and gentleness? What do those over whom you have power say about you? Even as you direct others, do you nurture and care for them? Are you, in other words, a washer of feet? For surely, we are not greater, you and I, than our master. The Lord Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of Peace, the one on whose shoulder the government rests, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.